The following Lenten series on Christian leadership is made possible by the Perrysburg Auto Mall and Catholic Charities of the Diocese of Toledo. This special Ignite Radio Live podcast is brought to you by Mass Impact. Not another program, a way of life in Jesus Christ. Find out more at massimpact.us. So good afternoon. Just just afternoon. Um, happy to be back this year, and thanks, Rich, for hosting this um, once again. Uh, so I'm going to talk on the importance of truth in leadership, in Christian leadership, and um, most ideas that I have, they aren't mine, so I borrow them from other people. The, the individual that I'm borrowing from today is Dietrich von Hildebrand. Um, probably you've never heard of him, most of you, um, but a great uh, philosopher. And the book that I'm borrowing uh, my ideas from is from the New Tower of Babel, and I'll talk about that title. It's kind of an intriguing title. Um, anyway, uh, so... Uh, just know that that is the source. I don't believe that the book is currently being published. So if Von Hildebrand's books are rare, and that makes them expensive. So if you want a copy of the book, it's probably like 70 bucks or something. But um, it may be coming into publication again soon in the next couple of years. But it's a really solid book, really great book. Well, the new Tower of Babel assumes that we know something about the old Tower of Babel and that biblical story of what the city and the Tower of Babel were all about. And I like to say city and tower because both elements are important in the story. It's all about humanity's attempt to consolidate all power and authority under itself. That's what the tower, the city and the tower of Babel were about. So the city element, when you think, what does a city do? A city sprawls, a city spreads. It goes out east, west, north, and south. It goes out in all directions. And so that signifies humanity's attempt to take all earthly power to itself. But then what does a tower do? Well, a tower climbs. It goes upwards. It goes to the heavens. And so the people in this city and who built the Tower of Babel were individuals who wanted to consolidate also all heavenly power to themselves. So the whole purpose of the tower was to get the peak of the tower up into the heavens where they thought God lived. They could get then their armies up into the heavens and throw God from his throne. Um, so in a sense, you could say it was their attempt to, in a sense, overthrow God so that there would be no power which was not theirs, either earthly or heavenly. Now, has that gone away, that desire or that temptation? I don't think so. I think it's a perennial temptation of the human person um, to want to consolidate power under ourselves. And so uh, von Hildebrand says a new tower of Babel is being built, and it's being built on an untruth, or you could say it's being built on a rejection of the human person's state as a creature. So what does a creature imply? When I ask the kids this question, it takes them a couple minutes to get it, but you guys are sharper than that. Um, if you are a creature, what does it imply? A creature implies that there is a creator and that there also might be some design in the creation, right? So that there is a creator and he's the one that's done the creating and he's the one then that knows what his creation is about. So to deny our status 
as a creature is really to deny the fact that there is a creator. Well, when you do that, you've thrown God from his throne in some sense. Uh, not actually, because he can't be usurped from his throne, but at least in our hearts, we've thrown him off his throne. And so now we've gotten rid of God. So what do we put in God's place? So there's two things that we can put in God's place, or at least it seems that when we've thrown God from his throne, then we can replace him with one of two things, either ourself as individuals, which we could call like a radical individualism, or we could call um, the, the, the collectivist state as the other opportunity. Now, in the past, that collectivist state was more obvious, I guess, with communism, right? So communism said there is no God, and what then is in the place of God? Well, it's, it's the collective humanity is in the place of God to the detriment of the individual. So as Stalin famously said, if you want to make an omelet, you have to crack some eggs. So he cracked 60 million eggs, 60 million humans died for the sake of his trying to build a utopia on earth. Um, I'm not going to focus on that, that uh, collective totalitarianism aspect of humanity's um, uh, rejection of their status of creaturehood. I'm going to focus instead on that individual self-sufficiency, that somehow we're, we're sufficient on our own and we don't need a creator in order um, for us to survive and to thrive. So that's where we're at in trying to build this new Tower of Babel as we flee from God and put ourselves at the apex of the universe. Now, individual self-sufficiency, what does it mean? Well, when we throw God down and we put ourselves in his place, um, then there are a number of corollaries that correspond to that. And so the first corollary is that we deny that there's anything that holds sovereignty over us. So once we put ourselves at the top, then there's nothing else that can impose itself upon me. And I think we probably saw that first culturally with a, a sort of moral relativism, that um, morals, there's nothing objective about morals. It's, um, they come from the subject, they come from individuals. Um, societies make them up as needed as we go along. However you want to define moral relativism, it seems to be it's a pretty common aspect of our society. Don't tell me what to do and um, leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. And about the only rule that's involved is whatever you want to do ought not to infringe upon what I want to do and, and vice versa. Um, unfortunately, though, there's no resolution to the conundrum of when people have conflicting desires of what they want to do. Um, but at any rate, there's no moral law that holds anything over and above me that I have to correspond my life to. There's also an, a rejection of the nature of things. And so we started seeing that with marriage. And um, uh, first of all, is marriage indissoluable? Is it till death do you part? Or is it something we can change as we like? And so that was the first element with rejecting that there's nothing you know, about marriage that holds anything over and above me. Um, but then we, we see that culture just keeps chipping away at the idea of marriage. So marriage can be between two consenting individuals. It doesn't matter um, who they are or what their gender is. And then uh, soon enough, we'll be at a spot where culturally we'll say marriage can be between as many people as want to commit themselves to this short-term or long-term, whatever you want to make of it, covenant um, relationship. Um, so 
again, it's a denial that there's anything that holds sovereignty over us. And then more recently, you see the gender debates, that, um, that there's no such thing as, as gender. Gender is something that we um, have as a construct, and we can therefore deconstruct it in our minds. And if somebody wants to change their gender, then they can do so either through, well, to the use of chemicals or through the use of surgery, etc. And then voila, you're something new. So in that regard, it's even a rejection of the limitations that matter might put on us, uh, because gender and matter have a lot to do with one another. But if so long as we can change and manipulate it to make it look like something else, it is something else. Um, so um, again, there's a denial that anything holds sovereignty over us. The last point in that regard is to say that even the meaning of human life doesn't hold sovereignty over us. That is, no meaning is given because there's no creator, so there's no meaning inherent to what it means to be human. Therefore, we can make our own meaning about what life should be. Okay. So that's the first point of a corollary for rejecting our status as creatures. A second corollary is that it's an illusion that humanity can achieve anything and everything by its own strength, by its own intelligence. So this seems so much um, to be believed by so many people. So on the one hand, we reject eternal truths because those cramp our style. We don't like them. Um, uh, like morality, but on the other hand, we worship science like it's the best thing ever. Now, there's a lot of blessings that come with science, um, but science, which is knowledge which could be otherwise, um, because, you know, why is the sky blue? It didn't have to be blue. It could be another color. But science comes through observing the material world and then um, commenting upon it. Well, we, we worship it, and why is because we use science to manipulate the material world to our end. And it, it makes us, in a sense, too big for our britches. So what we end up doing is we think we can achieve everything by our own strength. I remember um, in elementary school, I was probably in fifth grade, and there was, I don't remember the exact, uh, what the exact tool was I was using, but you had to read a passage and then you had to answer questions. And so I read the passage and then I went to answer the questions and, what struck me in the passage was that the passage said um, that by roughly the year um, like 2000, and so this was, I was in the elementary school in the 1980s, that we would have cured cancer. And then it said 2025, and then a dash, and it said immortality, question mark. <laughs> what hubris, I mean, th to think that the human family can, you know, achieve immortal life just by our own advancements in science. I mean, we're certainly not on track for 2025, um, <laughs> if that was even possible. And it begs the question, who wants it? <laughs> I mean, this world is not the world that we want to be in forever and ever and ever. Um, so anyway, there's an illusion when we reject God as our creator and we put ourselves in his place that we can achieve everything by our own strength. And then the, the third and last corollary um, is a distorted conception of happiness. So it's the belief that we can attain happiness insofar as we determine everything by ourselves. Um, so um, happiness is based then on what I desire and what my will is. And um, so long as I can continue to pursue what I desire and achieve what I will, I'm going to be happy. Oh, 
I think that's a distorted conception of happiness because it doesn't work. You know, ask anybody that's pursued something to the point of being addicted to it. That's what they wanted. Did it make them happy? In the end, it doesn't. So the consequences of that approach of throwing God uh, from his throne so that therefore we can put ourselves in his place, we reject our status as a creature, they're pretty tremendous. Now, what might they be? I'll spell some of the consequences out. So the consequence for number one, denying that anything holds sovereignty over us, if nothing holds sovereignty over us, then guess what? In the end, as Joseph Ratzinger, he talked about right before he was elected Pope, in the end, the strong man wins. Because it's not enough to just say, well, I do what I want, you do what you want, and so long as our desires don't conflict, that's all okay. Guess what? Desires conflict. And so then who, what do you have to appeal to? If you have your desire and the other person has their desire, there's nothing to appeal to but strength. The strong man wins. The one who's got his desire and is stronger than the other, he is going to win. And so we could say that you know, Ratzinger points something brilliant out there, um, that the will to power becomes the only force um, for anything in this world. And too bad for you if you're not strong enough to achieve what you want because you're going to get trampled on. The second thing, um, with the illusion that humanity can achieve everything by its own strength, that will lead to, and has led to, and plenty of life, disillusionment and frustration. Um, that's the inevitable result. I mean, think of what we tell our kids. Um, all this type of thinking is, is most common in the, in the affluent West. What do we tell our kids? You can be anything. No, you can't. You can't be anything. Because we're not all made equal in terms of our talents, our strengths, or our weaknesses. And so we do our kids a great disservice to say you can be anything when in fact they can't be anything. Um, to tell them that just leads to that disillusionment and frustration. So some kids learn in a way that's never going to be conducive to being a surgeon, for example. But other kids do learn in a way that's conducive to being a surgeon and praise God. Um, but um, to sort of flatten everything out and say that so long as you desire it, you can achieve it by your own strength. That just leads to frustration. I think we see it too in, in sort of uh, uh, the distorted notion of rights. That, you know, I have a right to an education and what does that mean? You know, it doesn't mean a right to the most basics of education. And by the way, you learn the most important things at the most basic of levels. It means, no, I have a right to go to college. I have a right to do this or that. No, you don't because you're Strengths and your talents might not be lying in that area. And if you try and pursue it, you're just going to end up with a lot of debt and a lot of frustration. The third thing um, to the distorted conception of happiness, rather than happiness, the final result of trying to determine everything by ourselves will be sorrow because it demands that we refuse all gifts. So I don't know about you, but I'm most happy when I receive a gift. <laughs> now, what do I mean by gifts? I don't mean throw money or something like that. You know, I mean like the gift of love. You can't will another, people, another person to love you. I mean, the most basic experience in life is that you receive love as a gift from others. And so um, try as you might or desire as you might that the other love you. If they don't love you, they don't love you. And it can never be forced. Um, so 
um, to say that we can determine everything by ourselves um, is just going to result not in happiness but in sorrow because it says that we can't accept gifts. Gifts come from someone greater than us, right? Um, so um, we could say that if you throw God down, well then there's no God to give us any gifts, so we can't be grateful for a good day, a beautiful day. We can't be grateful for um, beauty in the world. We can't be grateful for um, the love that God has for us or any blessing. Um, and then we really can't receive it from one another either. Um, so it just leads to sorrow. Now, what happened to the old Tower of Babel? So they had their efforts to put their top of their tower up in the heavens and um, God saw their efforts and he came down immediately and destroyed it. So there was uh, destruction was the end um, to their efforts. And the new Tower of Babel will implode on the same account um, because of its inherent absurdity. Um, as we point out just with the consequences of that thinking, it's going to come to a great crash. Um, but the crash, it doesn't need to come to us as individuals. And maybe you could say it doesn't even need to come to the culture as a whole. Um, it just depends on whether or not the culture changes. It's a lot harder to change a culture than it is to change an individual or to change ourselves. Um, so what is the antidote? Well, so knowing that it's almost impossible for us as individuals to change the culture, how can we at least change ourselves so that it's not a problem for us or for our loved ones? What well, comes in the realization and the acceptance of the fact that we are creatures, that we have a creator, and that we have to recognize the Creator and give a proper response to Him. Now, so that means complying our lives totally to what the Creator desires. Um, so if I took the three things that are the corollaries of putting ourselves at the center and saying we're not creatures anymore, we could take that and think about it through the lens of seeing ourselves as creature. So the first Corollary would be that we have to accept many things in this world which are greater than ourselves. And that requires a lot of virtues. It requires, first and foremost, humility to say, okay, I'm not at the center. There are things in this world that are greater than me. It requires reverence. And so what is reverence? When I encounter something that's greater than myself, I need to bow down before it. Um, I need to recognize it for what it is. And then part of reverence is giving the due response to it. So... You know, if, if there is a God, he's the supreme being. He must be something pretty awesome. Therefore, I need to worship him. Um, that's what the virtue of reverence calls for when we encounter the supreme being. Um, and then wisdom and discretion in terms of how um, these things which are greater than us, how we come to interact with them and to use them in this life. It means also accepting the fact that there's a moral law that we have to correspond our lives to. And that gender is meaningful. It's not just merely something physical that can be changed by pills and surgery, um, but that there is inherent meaning in gender. Or that beauty is something more than just in the eye of the beholder, um, which is a, um, a terrible way to think about beauty. That in fact, beauty is something um, transcendent. It's over and above us. And just because we don't see it, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Too bad for us if we don't see authentic beauty. Um, a second corollary then to putting God at the center and recognizing him as our creator, we can then reject the illusion that we can achieve everything on our own strength, which means that we would have to have a realistic understanding of our strengths and our weaknesses. 
Um, and then it can rein in this distorted notion of what I have a right to um, in this life. Um, so it means self-knowledge, right? So that we look at ourselves and what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? Um, and then we live accordingly. And then thirdly, um, putting God at the center and recognizing ourselves as created beings, we can restore the possibility for true happiness. So happiness is the result of the fulfillment of our nature. And so our nature is to transcend ourselves. That's our purpose. That's why we're made to exist. That's what happens in love. And if love is the most important of things in the universe, well, then when we love, we transcend ourselves. We go outside, we go over and above ourselves and entering into something which is greater than ourselves. We're elevated to a higher plane and a higher level. And I think when we think about um, what it is we desire in life, when we look deeply enough into our hearts, that's what we're looking for. And so the greater things of life, they present themselves to us as gifts from God, um, uh, from a benevolent and loving God. And so we have to see those gifts and then give the response that's due to great gifts, which is gratitude, um, which is not lost, shouldn't be lost on any of us. Why um, the, the greatest act of worship is also an act of gratitude in the Eucharist. We have to correspond our nature to each gift as it presents itself to us. And so, for example, matrimony is a gift from God. And so we don't define it according to how we want to define it. We have to look to both natural law and revelation to let matrimony tell us what it is so that we can correspond to the nature of that gift and live by it. And then the result will be happiness. Um, you could say that the happiness is a um, is, it's something that arises out of our living rightly and our transcending ourselves, living according to the plans of God. Um, so our series, it's on leadership and authentic leadership can only be done insofar as it's based in the truth. Um, so we might look and we say, oh, the person who is really good at the will to power, who, who's really good at getting what they want done, done, well, they're a good leader. I don't think so. I mean, Stalin was that. <laughs> he got done what he wanted done in some sense. But was he a good leader? I think we'd know. We'd say, no, he was an awful leader because he wasn't based in the truth. And the most important truth is that we recognize our status as created beings. And therefore, that there is a plan for our lives that we have to correspond to. Do that and then live those virtues of humility, reverence, and gratitude that is the way to fulfillment. That is the way to find meaning in life. It's not power, it's not strength, but rather this loving response to the Creator's plan for each of us. So anyway, those are some of the thoughts that uh, uh, come to me anyway as I read von Hildebrand's book, The New Tower of Babel. Hopefully it's helpful um, to see how we might be able to apply it. Um, it's easily applied, I think, in the element of the work world um, because the moral law needs to play in strongly in the world of work and in the world of leadership. So that's the end of my presentation. Does anyone have any questions or comments? Or He details exactly where we're at with respect to marriage, um, with respect to um, children, and whether or not we see children as gifts or not, um, or more as a burden. And he even goes into euthanasia. I mean, when hardly even thought of, at least in America in the 1950s, and saying that, well, you know, we, we can determine when we want to end our lives and, and even end the lives of others if they become too much of a burden upon the rest of us. So, any other questions? Does it make sense? 
Okay, that's one thing I love about this particular philosopher, von Hildebrand. He always makes very clear sense. And so much so he gets criticized for that because there are people that say, they read his stuff and they say, well, well he's not saying anything new. My response back is, can you say it so clearly? <laughs> no, I know I can't say it so clearly. The preceding Lenten series on Christian leadership was made possible by the Perrysburg Auto Mall and Catholic Charities of the Diocese of Toledo. This special Ignite Radio Live podcast was brought to you by Mass Impact. Not another program, a way of life in Jesus Christ. Find out more at massimpact.us.